You know, one of the things that I enjoyed immensely on our trip was the chance to, to see some of the cathedrals and, and ancient churches. They, they are just amazing. We were in York, and of course there is the magnificent minster that is there. It's just, it's just giant. But right across the, uh, the side street there is a smaller church. Looks a whole lot like the minster in terms of its stone and its construction. It's called St. Michael Le Belfre. It's, it's a small church in York. It's the only pre-Reformation church to be built all at one time. And it took 11 years to build that church. You know, the, the, the giant cathedrals took centuries. Uh, it's just incredible to, uh, to read some of the history and, and, uh, and experience it as you're there. I remembered a story that I read some years ago about a Russian Orthodox church that had disappeared. The 200-year-old building was northeast of Moscow, and it had been unused for a decade. But because the Orthodox church was experiencing growth throughout the country, officials felt that they would, uh, or at least explore, the possibility of reopening the building, and that's when they discovered that it was gone. I mean, it really was gone. They, they went to see it, no church. So they began the investigation, of course, and they discovered that the villagers in the area had taken the church apart, brick by brick, and had sold the bricks, each one for about one ruble, approximately at the time, four cents. Brick by brick, that church disappeared. I thought of that story as we were in England because many of the churches are no longer places of worship. They had been turned into other things, especially the smaller ones. I saw churches that were banks, churches that were schools, churches that, that were stores. I saw one that was a pizza shop. Now, I know that theologically speaking, we, we know that the church is, is not a building. It is the people of God who are the church. But we also know, don't we, that around the world for centuries, the people of God gather to worship most often in buildings, some more prominent than others. And some, like ours, designed for that very purpose, a place for God's people to gather to worship The building stands for something, right? It's only a building, but it stands for something. And as I reflected on on the buildings that were no longer a gathering place for God's people, it began to kind of water a sermon series seed that the Spirit had planted in my, my heart some weeks ago as I was seeking the Lord in a very spiritual moment. Lord, what in the heck am I going to speak on next? Now, that's often my my spiritual moment with the Lord as I am seeking Him in terms of of where does He want us to go? What uh, what do we need to be learning together? And I've been rereading a favorite Eugene Peterson book of mine. Uh, It's called The Contemplative Pastor. He's written it specifically for pastors in, in which he defines the role and the work of the pastor as being subversive. That's the word that he uses. Uh, more on that in a few minutes. But his, his words, his challenge began to kind of water that sermon seed that was, was perking in my heart. And uh, 
reminded me of one of my favorite texts regarding the, the nature of the church. There, there really aren't that many in the New Testament Scripture. There is, there's a lot about the church in terms of its, its function and, and God's people being together. The emphasis, of course, is always on the people of God. But the nature of the church... So if you've ever wondered where sermon series come from, uh, it's kind of this process. The Lord begins to plant some ideas, and I pray, and I seek Him, and sometimes I cry out in desperation. Uh, sounds like a pretty profound process, don't you think? So our text for this morning, as we uh, introduce what is going to be the next series, uh, speaks to the nature of the church. It's from Matthew 16. It's one that we're familiar with. It's not going to be the primary text of, of our study for a few Sundays, I, uh, I want to I wait on that one, uh, just, you know, a little suspense, it'll be excitement. I know you'll all be on the edge of your chairs just waiting for that announcement. But uh, I want us to talk about being a subversive church. What? What does that mean? How does that get fleshed out in our lives? So, let's stand and read a familiar text from Matthew 16. You remember that it was a, it was a conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. My sisters, my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now I want you just for a couple of minutes with a neighbor to imagine that you were there and you were part of that discussion. You heard that dialogue between Jesus and Peter. You heard what Jesus said. So talk with your neighbor for a minute. What does it mean? What does it mean to you, follower of Jesus, What does it mean? See what your neighbor thinks. What did you and your neighbor come up with? Now, you were just talking about something. That's a really novel concept, isn't it? No. Yeah. What are people saying? Yeah. He's he's probing, isn't he? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Good observation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yeah. That is the truth that God builds his church on through the ages. I like what my wife said. She uh, she said, you know, everything was going to be different. There had to be that sense, it seems likely, amongst the disciples as as they're, they're listening to that conversation. Things are changing. There's something really going on here, and, and the language that Jesus uses is so significant. And so it's important that we, that we hear clearly 
some of the things that, that Jesus says. That Again, for so many of us, this text is, is quite familiar. We've, we've seen it many, many times. But let's zero in on just a few things and make sure that we're really clear. First, Peter's declaration of who Jesus is, as Zach has referenced, revealed to him by God the Father, is the basis upon which Jesus declared ownership of the church. He didn't say, I'm going to build your church. I will build my church. Who does the church belong to? The church belongs to Jesus. It always has, and it always will. Now, you can play that out on a couple of levels. We understand, as we said, theologically, we know that the church is people. And so that means that those who are his, those who are a part of his church, they belong to him. Jesus is their owner. That is not an insignificant truth. That's something that I think we need to allow to kind of rattle around a bit and and, and maybe way into our hearts to think about the ownership of Jesus over my life. And of course, then that includes all the things that are mine. All of my possessions, my relationships. Collectively, what we have here as God's people, this building and the resources that are a part of it, If Jesus owns us, then he owns this. So it's the ownership of of Jesus, uh, clearly stated uh, by Peter's declaration. I think one of the things that I have just so greatly appreciated about the work of the Vitality team over these last couple of years has been their commitment to reading the scripture with one another prior to every meeting and then listening and sharing together, what God is speaking to them from his word into one another's lives. And that practice, quite simply, is grounded in the belief that Applewood Community Church belongs to the Lord Jesus. And we probably ought to always give attention to what he is saying to us, his people. What does he want us to do? Who does he want us to be? The church in both its universal, God's people for all time, all places, and its local form, gatherings of believers like this in a specific place, it belongs to Jesus. And that is a truth that is more than just a a simple acknowledgement, or at least it, it, it should be. There's a second statement here. Jesus says he's going to to build his church. There's a a process that that is going on or is about to begin. It's significant, I think, and maybe a bit ironic, perhaps in the minds of the disciples, a few days before the Holy Spirit came upon them, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, came upon them with power. Jesus had told them that this was going to happen. But just a few days before that happened, where did Jesus go? He left went back to the Father. Acts 1 tells us 
that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. They, they stood there, Luke writes, looking intently into the sky. <laughs> and, and I can only imagine what they're thinking. You know, in, in the heat of the moment. But, but what about your church, Jesus? What about those things that you said? The, you know, that, that church that, that the gates of hell are never going to stand. You know, what, what now? Remember in John 14, Jesus told his, defo- told his followers that it, that it was a good thing that he was leaving them soon. They didn't think so. They were sad. But he said, no, it's, it's good that I'm going to the Father. And the reason for that was, do you remember? So that the Spirit would come. You know, it's hard to imagine, and I'm sure that the disciples would have stood right there and said, no way is this possible. Jesus was saying to them that it's better that he goes so that they can have the Spirit in their lives even better than having him right there next to them. Get your mind around that for a minute. Jesus is deferring to the role and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Guys, I'm out of here. But that's a good thing because then the Spirit of God is going to come and indwell your life. They had no idea how that was going to turn things upside down. The Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Jesus, would come and indwell all those who were His followers, giving them the power to live any old way they wanted to, right? To live as the people of God, to live as the church of Jesus Christ in the world. That's the point of the Spirit of God. That's the reason that He indwells us. You know, the Greek word for church means called out. Those who are followers of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, are called out. They're they're in a different category. They're in a different camp to use some of the Old Testament imagery. So what are they called out from? From where? From, from what? So, tell me if you've heard these words recently. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His glorious light. You heard those words before? Familiar, right? Just nod, I'll feel a whole lot better. First Peter series, just in case you were wondering. You're chosen people. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light as God's people live their lives in the power of the Spirit. It is a life that gives praise to God. It declares who God is, the point of that, so that others may see God and the value of His kingdom lived in us and perhaps be drawn to that. As people live lives that are transformed by the power of the Spirit given to them for that very purpose. 
You remember the word subversive. I mentioned it earlier. Well, we're, we're coming to that. The New Testament paints for us a clear picture of a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it is going on all the time. And it's going on over the, the souls of people. It's the very foundational truth of our faith. That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh so that he could die for the sins of humanity. That means that humanity has a problem. It's really important to remember that. Because it's all tied into the, the, the purpose of the church. And living for the praises and the glory of God and declaring that in the lives that we live. Humanity has a problem. The Bible doesn't paint for us a picture of people who are simply misguided, but they have good moral intent and they're just in need of a little advice. That is not the picture that we get of humanity apart from Christ. It presents a picture of people who have believed the lie that there is no God. Or... If there is a God, he's not that important, he's not that interested, or if he's interested, he's kind of a grandfatherly character, who, if he's keeping record, kind of grades on a curve and is always, you know, beneficent to his, his grandchildren. That humans exist as a law unto themselves is a part of the lie. It's the heart of the lie, actually. And that they get to choose to live life any way that they want to. Pursue happiness. You can find it apart from God. And oh, by the way, if there is a God, it's helpful to do some good things from time to time. Just to kind of, you know, weigh the balance in your favor if there is some kind of judgment. The picture that Scripture gives us is that there is a spiritual power of evil. And that power hates God and has propagated this lie. And as as a result of believing it, humans, in fact, they are not free, but they are destined to live in a prison of bondage to self and the whims of the power of darkness. They are hopelessly separated from the life that they were created to live with no possibility of escape on their own should they even want to escape. That is the picture that Scripture paints. But it also paints the amazing truth that God even though he has been rejected from his rightful place as creator and sovereign of every human heart, God never stops loving those people. Yeah. Incredible. And it is that love that carries out God's rescue plan. To rescue people through the death and resurrection of his son, from a life of hopeless futility lived apart from God. And to transform those who are lost, those who are rebels, to make them his children. And then give them all the power that they need to live lives that proclaim his wonder and the truth of our rescue to those who haven't been rescued yet. 
And that leads to a third truth that Jesus says about his church. The gates of death, of Hades, of hell, will not stand against it. Will not. Will not. Definitive statement. Which means that the fortress of evil that holds the human heart in bondage will do all that it can to keep people right where they are and make them believe that they are just fine. The gates of hell will not stand against the church of Jesus. Which means then that the church is on the offensive according to Jesus. God's people, both individually and collectively, are on a mission. And quite frankly, it's not secondary to why he redeemed us and left us here in the first place. It is primary. It is the fundamental center of our lives as the people of God. We have been redeemed by God's amazing grace and we have been left on this planet in the midst of brokenness and pain and bondage to declare the praises of him who has called us out of that into his wonderful light. Wow. Fundamental center of our redeemed lives. God has made us his children And he has filled us with his spirit, his power to live lives that demonstrate for those who watch our lives his original design and intent for human beings. Now this is where things, I think, begin to get a little subversive. Definition of subvert is this. Undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. That's exactly what the church is called to do. We live on an earth that is held bondage by the power of evil and human hearts that are held in prisons of self-focus and self-absorption apart from the design and the intent of their creator. And that is a system that needs to be subverted. And as I read Peterson's words regarding the subversive nature of the pastor, I found myself thinking, that is really true for all of God's people. We are not called to be agents of change. We are called to be people who live out the reality of a God who changes. Kind of a subtle difference. But I think sometimes if we think too much about, gosh, it's my responsibility to change things, then we find ourselves running down paths that are just ramped up and energized by human effort and futility. When the reality is, we are called to be people who are transformed to allow the Spirit of God to change us, to transform us from the inside out, and people begin to look and say, I've never seen that before. That's because if we are open and willing and surrendered to the Spirit, the Spirit will begin to impart into our lives a love and appreciation for the values of the kingdom of God, which are more often than not 
diametrically opposed to the values of the kingdom of this fallen world. Make sense? The values of the kingdom of God, you know, that place where God is king, where God rules, and people live in submission to his rule, those values, the values of his kingdom, they become the values of his people, his church. And he has given his people his spirit for the purpose of living those things out. Because there's no way that we do it apart from the spirit of God empowering us to do it. And, we, we, and he calls us to do it with, it, it's, it's kind of a play on words, to live out the values of the kingdom by exhibiting the values of the kingdom as, as we live them out. Humility and honesty before others. We don't do it brashly and loudly. We do it quietly. And we do it humbly. I think, forgive me if this is, is a gross overstatement, but I think as I read history where the church has gotten itself into trouble through the ages is that it has succumbed to a syncretistic value system claiming to be the people of God and yet living out values that look a whole lot like anybody else lives. I think that's a problem. This has been especially true in societies where the church has been recognized and granted status by the prevailing authorities. We tend to do things the way others do, and we add a Christian tag to it. That is just not at all what Jesus had in mind. There was a survey done in 2013 by the Barna Group. They asked over 1,000 American adults the following question. What do you think about going to church? Well, who knows what people are thinking in terms of what the church means in their minds. But about 30% of Americans at that time say attending church is very important. About 40% are ambivalent about attending church, and 30% say attending church is not important at all. Those who are ambivalent about attending church gave two top reasons for their ambivalence. I find God elsewhere... And it's not personally relevant. The millennials who are opting out of church cite the following three factors with equal weight in their decisions. They cite the moral failures of church leaders, hypocrisy, and the church's irrelevance. 20% of millennials say that God is missing from church and 10% sense that doubt is prohibited. And also, when asked to list what made your faith grow, the church didn't even make the top ten on those lists. not that interesting? You know all those empty churches in England that have become something other than a gathering place for the worship of God's people? Some stats that I looked at this week report that in the U.S., around 4,000 churches per year close their doors. There is less than one-half the number of churches today than 100 years ago. 3,500 people leave the church, according to this researcher, every single day in the States. So here's my question for you. Will Applewood Community Church exist a year from now? Gosh, I sure hope so, right? 
Will it exist five, ten years from now? Or will it be a, a coffee or, or, or a pizza shop? I think that there is a marvelous challenge that lies ahead of us as the people of God living in the time that we find ourselves. And I want to suggest to you that that the life and the energy of the people of God called Applewood Community Church is not guaranteed by anything that we can muster up on our own efforts. You know, anything that, that, that we love about Applewood and don't necessarily want to lose, we, we tend to, as God's people, kind of cling to those things that are important and we forget Okay, I forget, maybe you don't. I forget that the church belongs to Jesus and perhaps I should be talking to him about what he wants to do in this place we call Appwood Community Church. And I think that in Matthew chapter 6, in response to a question asked Jesus by his disciples, prayer becomes the most important tool that we have in our toolbox. Because prayer at its bottom basic level is basically expressing dependence upon God. It is as a a created being saying to the creator, I need you. My life needs more of you. I am operating in a deficit. I need you if I'm going to fulfill this mission to which you have called me. And so, Matthew chapter 6, very familiar prayer. Why did the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray? They prayed several times a day. They were Jews. It's a part of their tradition. But Luke tells us that his followers had asked Jesus to teach them to pray even though they were undoubtedly participants in the tradition of their people. Why is that? I'm suspicious. It's because they saw the life that Jesus lived before their eyes linked with his prayer life. Jesus told his disciples and others who were within earshot, I don't do anything, I don't say anything other than what I hear from the Father. His life was not his own. His life was surrendered to the will of his Father. And in his humanity, time and time and time again, you see through the Gospels, Jesus returning to prayer with his Father. Here's the thing I've never thought of before. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, this was the prayer that he taught them. I know that's deeply profound. And I can see the stunned look on your face. You've never considered something of that spiritual depth. He could have taught them a lot of things to pray, right? the prayer that is recorded for us in Matthew 6 and Luke 5, that's the prayer. In in the repertoire of all the things that Jesus could possibly want for his disciples to pray, 
He said, pray this. Let the principles of this prayer shape your prayer life. Now we know right off the bat that it's not the prayer, the only prayer that we pray verbatim. Otherwise, Paul and Peter and and other passages in, in the New Testament text are in error. I think it's a principle thing. I think Jesus, understanding that he was going to build his church through these individuals and more individuals to come down through the ages, knew that they needed to be grounded in the source of power that was only available to them as they allowed prayer to shape their lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit that lived in them. So that's where we're going to go for the next few Sundays. We're going to take a look at this prayer that I think is very subversive. Very familiar. We probably know that prayer better than we do John 3.16. And most of us have known that since we were about 18 months old. Um, Powerful, powerful prayer. Subversive in its nature. Stands against the values of the kingdom of this world and promotes, I think, in, in an exciting way, the values of God's kingdom. So, praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we respond Thank you all for the great job that you were doing this morning. And uh, so, can I give you an assignment? You knew this was coming, right? Even though you know it well, even though you've memorized it, read the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples again and again and again. Begin to live in it. Begin to think through the words that are so familiar. And ask the Spirit of God to begin to open your heart and you're thinking to the truths that are there that reveal to us the nature of the kingdom and the mission to which God has called us in this world.